Hello, and welcome to Scrub Up, a podcast designed specifically for medical students to help fine-tune your knowledge in gynaecology. I'm Lucy Richards, your show host and education fellow in obstetrics and gynaecology at the John Hunter Hospital and University of Newcastle, and we're recording today on a Awabakal land. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Frida Carswell, urogynecologist extraordinaire at the John Hunter Hospital, who will be helping me nut out through our case. Hello, Frida. Hi, Lucy. Okay, so Frida, today we're going to walk through the case of Ursula, who is 67 years old, and she's been referred into your urogynec clinic um, by her GP. The GP's letter details that Ursula's had incontinence for years now, but it's really getting worse in the last 12 months. She wears continence pads daily because she's leaking such large volumes and reports significant urgency, voiding every 15 to 30 minutes, but often leaking on the way to the toilet. She doesn't report any prolapse symptoms at the same time. Ursula's main medical history is of congestive cardiac failure and diabetes. She takes metformin and fruzamide for these. She suffers chronic constipation and takes regular Movicol to keep her bowels moving. And she does have some mobility limitations due to osteoarthritis, so walks with a four-wheel walker. Ursula has had two children, one born by forceps delivery, and she went through menopause age 52, not requiring any HRT for symptoms. She drinks about four cups of tea per day, and the dietitian told her to avoid sugar uh, to help manage her diabetes. So she's been drinking some sugar-free beverages um, to get her through the day, although aside from these drinks, she tries not to drink too much water because it just worsens her incontinence. She has been trying to lose weight but remains at a BMI of 37. This is kind of a bit of a start of our case and we'll explore a bit more details, but Frida, maybe before we go there, you can just tell us, you've got a really nice analogy on how we describe the different types of incontinence that I think is really useful. Um, so do you want to maybe just kind of nut through some definitions? Um, thank you, Lucy. So I think of incontinence um, in a simple way where the tank is the bladder and the tap is the urethra. And generally, if you have a problem with a tap, you tend to get stress incontinence. And if you have a problem with a tank, um, you tend to have urge incontinence. Now, that is a very simple analogy, of course. Um, and there are variations to that. Um, I guess the definition of um, urge incontinence is um, leakage um, preceded by an urge. And they often have frequent micturition, so more than eight voids a day. And often these women have nocturia as well, where they get up during the night. So about half of women end up with incontinence at some point in life. And uh, out of these half of them are stress incontinence, 20% have urge incontinence, and about 30% have both, um, which we call mixed incontinence. Okay, so that's perfect. I think I really like that tap and tank analogy is just a simple way of thinking about the two different problems. So next, maybe if you wouldn't mind, can you describe to every for everyone what these different what causes these different types of incontinence? I mean, I think everyone knows that age has something to do it, but do with it. But is it just that age makes everything all the tissue thinner and weaker? Or is there more to it than that? 
Um, age definitely play a role and it does make your muscles weaker in general. Um, your main contributor to stress incontinence is childbirth. And childbirth um, damages the ligaments that hold up the urethra so that the urethra moves too much when you move. Um, so we call that hypermobility. And again, so this is our tap analogy. So the tap is moving downwards and that causes more pressure in the tank to leak. Um, there are other things that can make the tap move more freely and genetic um, conditions such as Ehlers-Danlos or any connective tissue disorder tends to make the um, tissues weaker. And um, of course, chronic pressure from above um, such as constipation and obesity and chronic cough can also contribute. Um, when it comes to urge incontinence, um, inflammation of the tank is of course going to make it more overactive. So recurrent infections and potentially inflammation that's left over from having had recurrent infections in the past. Um, there's also nerves that controls the tank, um, the tank and they play a big role. So diabetes can affect the nerves and lots of neurogenic condition and back problems um, can cause more urgency. And some people just have a sensitive um, tank. So people with chronic pain and endometriosis often have a very sensitive tank and they go more often to the toilet. And lastly, if you have an obstruction to the tap, um, the tank will be more overactive. Mm. So some sort of bladder outlet obstruction can lead to that overactivity as well. Mm. Okay, so um, I guess it's important when we get cases that sound like they're obviously one thing that come into clinic that we don't forget to think about all of um, the worrying things that we need to exclude that might be rare, but make sure that we're not missing things. And occasionally, urge incontinence can be a symptom of something a bit more worrying. Um, can you just go through um, the, the things that you always have in the back of your mind that you don't want to miss that might be a cause of urge incontinence? Um, yes, of course. So um, cancer is always um something to be on the lookout for. So if the woman has risk factor for cancer, such as being a smoker, um, being old is the main risk factor. Um, and particularly if she has blood in the urine, um, they could have a bladder cancer. Um, neurological causes, as we discussed, like multiple sclerosis, dementia and stroke can give you bladder symptoms. Um, an infection um, can be a cause of urgency and urge incontinence and often goes away when you treat the infection. Um, we did talk about the obstruction, and that can sometimes be from a cancer too, obstructing the tap. Um, the other thing to think about is sometimes we have caused the incontinence ourselves by giving the patient drugs that can cause incontinence. Um, particularly diuretics and narcotics can influence the bladder. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, perfect. So I think we've got a good idea of all of the um, different possibilities of what can be causing this incontinence. Um, so now we kind of return back to Ursula and we need to go ahead and do an examination um, and see if we can elicit anything that might be contributing to her problem and also order a few basic investigations. So, I mean, what are the key things that we need to look for when we examine and what are the investigations we'll do, Frida? Um, so when it comes to incontinence, I think you get most of your points from the history. So the history is the most important part. There are a few things you should look for on exam, and that's to make sure they don't have a big pelvic mask um, causing a pressure effect. Um, you should absolutely look to make sure they don't have a big prolapse that's causing obstruction. And it's useful to check for atrophy. Um, you can also check for sensory changes, and I usually assess the strength of their pelvic floor as well. And while you're there, um, get them to do a cough and make sure you move your head to the side. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing worse than a wee in the face. <laughs> um, but um, investigations-wise, um, always look for infection. And it's useful to make sure there's no blood in the urine. A pelvic ultrasound is useful. And um, urodynamics is not a first-line investigation. It's generally something that we do if the patient is thinking of having a surgical procedure or if you're unsure what's going on. And I often use a lot of questionnaires to help me um, for a few reasons. It can help auditing outcomes, but it gives you a little bit of a fast history taking as well and saves time in clinic. Um, and the particular um, questionnaire that I know you like to use, Frida, is the Australian Pelvic Floor Questionnaire, which just runs through people's symptoms of bladder, bowel, sexual function and prolapse symptoms. So it's a really nice little tool that examines those things. But the other common questionnaire that people um, will ask patients to do themselves at home is a bladder diary. So a way of kind of recording um, the bits and bobs of what they're doing every day with how much fluid intake they're having and how much they're passing and how frequently when it's hard sometimes to describe that stuff when you're asking a history. Um, so you did mention neurodynamics, um, and it's a pretty important, um, test to understand, um, when you're assessing someone's urinary incontinence, um, because there's lots of little parts to it. And actually probably the easiest way to understand neurodynamics is to come to neurodynamics and see actually what happens. But, um, but maybe you can humor me and let me just try and describe the Essentially, urodynamics is a whole bunch of tests all together in one go um, to assess the bladder function. And so a woman will come in to see us. She'll empty what's in her bladder over a, a pressure um, detecting kind of cup so we know how much she's voiding and how rapidly she's voiding. We then check she hasn't got any residual volume in her bladder with an inact catheter and then put a few pressure probes, one into the bladder and one into the rectum to the, the combination of those two pressure probes help us calculate the detrusor muscle pressure. And then we assess what happens to the detrusor muscle as we fill it up and as we empty it out. And so each of those steps along the way help give us a little bit of an idea of what the function of the bladder is. Um, the other test that we do often is to check the urethral pressures by moving that catheter in and out of the urethra. 
So, um, so that's an important test, but it does involve quite an invasive, you know, half an hour of someone's day, um, and that's why it's um, not something that we recommend for everyone. Um, and it also has, um, you know, in some settings, it's not always a perfect test of what's going on. It's just a snapshot on the day and that we sometimes will miss things um, of their bladder function. Okay, so now um, we've got a good idea of how urodynamics works and Ursula actually does go come and have urodynamics with us in the clinic and it demonstrates that she has detrusor overactivity, which is a form of overactive bladder. Um, but maybe, uh, Frida, you can just kind of tell us what that actually looks like on the test results. What are, how, how do we diagnose that with our urodynamics? Um, so if you look then on the line that, describes the detrusor pressure, you can either see a line that slowly goes up and up and up, um, and that's indicative of um, a poorly compliant bladder, which um, can happen when you have detrusor overactivity, or you get the classic detrusor overactivity um, where you get systolic contractions um, seen as like a wormy line. Um, so they're the two main things you would see with that. Okay. And so if we come back to Ursula's case now, we know that that she's got um, primarily urge incontinence and um, we also know a little bit about um, what's going on in her medical history and a few things that might be contributing to the case. And just kind of to remind everyone, um, we know that Ursula had some features of constipation. Um, I'm not sure if I um, highlight the fact that she was overweight or obese. Um, she had um, diabetes, which the more we gather from her is not pretty particularly well controlled. Um, she has congestive cardiac failure and, and has got some peripheral edema. Um, and in her lifestyle, she's drinking lots of tea and lots of sugar-free beverages. And um, because she doesn't want to um, avoid too much, she's also limiting her water intake um, and she has some limited mobility. So um, there's a few things that are probably contributing, but maybe, um, Frida, you can just kind of go through your approach to all of these, this lifestyle management uh, or these lifestyle strategies that people can initiate for management of urge incontinence. Um, so number one when it comes to incontinence is weight loss. Um, weight loss improves not only stress incontinence, but it also improves urge incontinence. Um, and as little as 10% weight loss can make a huge difference to incontinence. Um, it would also improve her diabetic control, which is the other big contributor to incontinence. Um, because diabetes causes polydipsia and polyuria, both of those will worsen incontinence significantly. Um, in this particular case, um, she is also on a diuretic, um, which sometimes will worsen urgency, but you can um, occasionally play around with the timing of the diuretic depending on when she gets incontinence. So if her nighttime symptoms are the worst, um, the furosemide could be given of an afternoon um, to let her um, wee out all the fluid before she goes to bed. Um, now, the next most important conservative strategy will be a physio to help her strengthen her pelvic floor. And the reason we refer them to a physio and don't let them just do it themselves 
is because most women are completely unable to contract their pelvic floor. Um, they squeeze their butt cheeks and their abdomen, but nothing happens in the actual pelvic floor. So that's where the physio comes in to teach them how to do that properly. And some women never learn to do that, and that's when we can get help from magnetic stimulation and electrical stimulation. Um, now, other factors, so constipation um, and cough, of course, contribute. So managing that by stopping smoking or managing asthma can help. And probably about 75% of women will have success in treating their incontinence with these conservative measures. Okay, so there's lots of really good management strategies. And before we move on there, I, I know you mentioned physio and pelvic floor exercises, um, but uh, we also sometimes refer women to have some bladder training. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how bladder retraining fits. What is that? Uh, so bladder retraining is where you... Um, go regularly to the toilet, um, but you try not to go when you get an urge. And what that does is um, it gives you more control of your bladder. Um, when you have an urge, that is generally because the bladder is contracting. And if you rush off to the toilet at that point, you're more likely to leak um, than if you wait till that urge has gone away. Um, but to be able to do that, you also need to empty regularly when the bladder does not give you the urge. So that's called timed voiding. Um, and this strategy can be very helpful for urge incontinence. And there are nice leaflets that you can give the patients on the internet for this. The next thing we're going to launch into is some of the medications that we can use to treat women um, when those conservative measures fail, which inevitably by the time they come to us in clinic, they've already tried a lot of the conservative measures. Um, but before we go there, um, uh, Frida might just have to humour me while I take a minute to talk about physiology because it's so important when we're talking about urge incontinence to understand the physiology of how the bladder works because the medicines so directly target these receptors. So um, I just want to remind everyone there's two different phases of um, how a bladder functions. There's the storage phase and there's the voiding phase. So storage phase is obviously when we're not emptying our bladder and this is the time when our sympathetic nervous system is in control our um, parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and digest part of our um, autonomic nervous system is dominant when we're um, voiding because it's safe, but when we're not voiding, it's sympathetic. Um, so when that um, phase of um, our bladder storage is happening, our continent centre in the brain at the pons um, sends signals via the hypergastric sympathetic nerves from T10 um, to L2 um, they sort of arise from those nerve roots and they target beta-3 adrenergic receptors on the detrusor muscle of the bladder and that stimulation tells the muscle to relax. So at the same time, we also have some somatic nervous activity and they're mainly causing the internal urethra sphincter to contract so that we're not leaking accidentally. Um, so the second phase, when we're going to start voiding now, it's safe. We've got our parasympathetic nervous system um, at play. 
we get some signals from our bladders. Generally, our bla- the afferent signals from the bladder are saying, it's full now, you need to go and pass urine. And so um, we use that con- that um, pontine micturition center in the bladder once again to send parasympathetic nerve signals via the um, S2 and S4 nerve roots. And they act on M3 or muscarinic receptors in the bladder, um, particularly on the detrusor muscle, and they cause it to contract. And at the same time, we have a lessening of that sympathetic control over the internal urethral sphincter that allows it to relax. And we also um, consciously tell the external urethral sphincter to um, relax. And so that allows for us, with the help of gravity, to void. Um, so now that we've gone back through that basic physiology, maybe, um, Frida, you can walk us through what our options are for medical management of urgent continence. Great. So there are a few medications we can use for incontinence. Um, one of the most commonly used are anticholinergics. So the anticholinergic medications act on their uh, muscarinic receptors in the bladder and relaxes the muscle to stop the urgency and the urge incontinence. Um, The most commonly used um, medication we use is oxybutynin, and that's a non-selective anti-muscarinic treatment. So it acts on all muscarinic receptors in the body. Now, in the bladder, it's mainly M2 and M3, um, but this medication acts on all of them, including in your gut and in your brain. So um, oxybutynin have lots of side effects due to this and confusion and constipation and dry eyes are some of the common side effects that we can see. And so you shouldn't use anticholinergics, particularly oxybutynin, in elderly confused patients or frail patients. You shouldn't use it if they have narrow angle glaucoma Um, or if they have severe uh, Crohn's disease or problems with their gut. Um, There are more selective medications that you can use that target the bladder ones, and they tend to have less side effects. So um, solifenacin is one of those, for example. Um, Now, none of these other tablets are on the PBS, so they're a little bit more expensive. But solifenacin has a reasonable price at about $20, $30, um, so it's fairly affordable. Um, you can still get the anticholinergic side effects, but they tend to be less. Um, oxybutynin also comes as a patch, and because it's a patch form, it has less um, GI side effects, so less constipation. And it doesn't seem that the, blood, uh, the patch crosses the bl- um, blood-brain barrier, so you have less confusion with the patch. Now, if you want to avoid all of those side effects, you can act on a different receptor. So we can act on the beta-3 receptor, and um, you have none of those side effects. Now, um, the beta-3 agonist can, though, cause um, high blood pressure and a slightly higher heart rate. So you don't want to use it in women who have um, arrhythmias, for example. Now, no medication for the bladder is better than any of the others. So it's all about side effect profile. Um, They're all equally effective. You can also combine the beta-3 and the anticholinergic together because they act on different receptors. And you can also use um, Ovestin cream. Um, Ovestin doesn't act on any of these receptors. It just 
makes the um, the muscle and the tissues in the vagina um, more estrogenized, and so they can work a bit better. So I find that estrogen doesn't really reduce incontinence, but it can reduce urgency and it can reduce urinary tract infections. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, that's a really nice summary. Thank you so much, Frida. And um, I guess um, we might just move back to Ursula and see where we got to um, because she she goes ahead and she um, tries the oxybutynin patch um, because it's probably the most cost-effective option for her. Um, and she feels that her symptoms have improved a little. She does um, take some steps to cut down to just one coffee a day and cuts out her sugar-free beverages, which um, uh, we know are another potent sort of thing that stimulates the bladder and overactive bladder. Um, but she finds that she's still up all night. She's really bothered by her nighttime symptoms when we catch up with her again um, and as a result is quite fatigued. Um, so, Frida, when someone has really dominant nighttime symptoms, is there anything that you do differently to manage their symptoms? So um, the Tango questionnaire is um, one that you can use to work out um, in what domain you should focus your energy on um, when it comes to nighttime problems. And so the first section is your um, cardiometabolic and your main issues here are your edematous conditions um, and treating these better can improve your nighttime symptoms. Um, but also diabetes is in this section too. Um, the next one is sleep, and um, obstructive sleep apnea is your main um, course here. And people with obstructive sleep apnea often have what's called nocturnal polyuria. So they produce more volume of urine during the night than during the day. And when you treat the obstructive sleep apnea, um, their symptoms get better. Even just poor sleep patterns or chronic insomnia can make you produce more urine at night. So sometimes I give these patients melatonin um, to make them sleep better and their nocturia gets better just from that. Um, if they have a lot of daytime symptoms, then of course we focus on all the things that we focused on before. So um, if it's actually the bladder that's contracting during the night, then that's what we would focus on. And then your general well-being. So mobility and overall health plays a role in this. So the tanker questionnaire can be quite useful in women who wee a lot during the night. Now, particularly when it comes to Ursula, she would be at very high risk of obstructive sleep apnea. So I would probably refer her for a sleep study. And... Um, Take yeah. it from there. Yeah. Perfect. Um, the number of patients that Frida has diagnosed with sleep apnea <laughs> through her clinic is quite remarkable um, because the two things so often coexist. So um, perfect. We go ahead and 
um, manage some of these symptoms that are really contributing to Ursula's nighttime uh, voiding. And actually, when we catch up with her six months later, she is finally sleeping much better. Um, she did have a sleep study that confirmed obstructive sleep apnea, and she's now got a CPAP machine and is only waking about once a night to use the bathroom. So she's very grateful. Um, but still through the day, um, her daytime symptoms are really persisting. Um, despite us adding in Betmega in addition, um, that's the beta-3 agonist in addition to her oxybutynin and patch. So um, I guess from here, where where do we have to go for Ursula with managing her urgency symptoms, Frida? Where's the last line that we've got? So the most effective treatment we have for urgent continence is um, intravesical Botox. And um, the dry rate with Botox is near 70%, so very effective. Um, but uh, with effectiveness also comes um, side effects. So occasionally it works too well. And these patients can't empty the bladder at all, which puts them at a high risk of infections. Um, but the chance of needing a catheter after Botox is less than 5%. Um, if you are worried about um, difficulty emptying your bladder, then there are two other options. And both of these involve nerve stimulation. So you can either do peripheral nerve stimulation with a TENS machine or with acupuncture, um, or you can do more central nerve stimulation with something called sacral neuromodulating. Um, now, these, um, the, the last option is only available in the private system. It's not funded in the public, unfortunately. Um, if the case is very severe, occasionally we will put a catheter in and an SPC so a suprapubic catheter is more comfortable than a urethral catheter in these cases. And very last option, if the patient is extremely frail, all we have is good containment. So really good pull-up pants, um, good bed sheets that will catch all the urine. And there is actually a government grant to help you pay for these containment um, options. And the grant can also be used to pay for medications. And that's called CAPS funding. And that's useful to know. Um, and it's a lifetime grant um, that you get about $700 a year. Last I heard, Ursula ended up having some bladder Botox and has had a huge relief of her bladder symptoms. So I was very grateful at her most recent review. And that concludes our case for today. Many thanks to Frida Carswell, our urogynecologist and expert that helped walk through the case with us. Finally, some summary points. So to take away from this case, I think there are a few th key things to remember. First of all, a tap versus tank analogy to think about where stress and urge incontinence fits. Tango questionnaires for nocturia or nighttime symptoms to help differentiate what might be the causes of keeping people awake at night. Lifestyle management strategies, the big key ticket items are weight loss, fluid intake, bowels, and managing chronic medical conditions. And then medications for urgent continence. Considering this as per those important anti-muscarinic pathways or beta-3 adrenergic pathways, targeting the sympathetic versus parasympathetic nerve pathways that control bladder function. And finally, 
um, our last line treatment, uh, consider Botox. Thanks for joining us. This is Scrub Up. We'll chat to you next time.